How does a little Idaho case, and it's not little, it's very important to Idaho, but it's 57 Stockwater rights. What is 57 Stockwater rights in the state of Idaho? How does that implicate a broader swath of Western United States? That's basically the crux of our conversation today as Gage Zobel with the law firm of Dorsey and Whitney walks us through the multiple angles of this topic, starting first with water and land use of our public lands. The federal government's not using public lands the way they promised us they were gonna use them in the West, under the Taylor Grazing Act, under the multiple use mandate, they're changing the game. We'll discuss how policy rather than legislation is now the norm when it comes to the rules and regulations that we see here in the countryside. And we'll discuss how climate initiatives are shaping policy with no realization to the consequences they're gonna make on the production of the food and fiber in our country. Ranchers, mining, oil and gas, everybody that uses public lands, you're on the same side now. It's a web of topics that seems to come back to one thing, and it's on today's episode of The Working Ranch Radio Show. And this is the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. Thanks for joining us here today on the program. Now, I know if you heard the opening there and you live in a state that does not have federal grounds, which would be BLM or Forest Service, or you're not in the Western states, you might be thinking, well, what does this have to do with me? Well, I encourage you to stay through the entire show because we do answer that question specifically. However, we start with looking at some of the issues that are taking place here in the West with federal land and how policy is being shaped to affect those that could in turn have deeper effects than just what's being seen in the West. Now, before we get too far, I did want to remind you that coming up later in the show, as we always have, the Captain Tim O'Byrne will be stopping in for this week's edition of Tim's Two Cents. He's on the road to Orlando. We'll hear from him on that. And of course, meteorologist Don Day will be in as we take a look at that long-term weather as he gives us kind of an idea of what he thinks the month of February is going to look like. So be sure to tune in through the show for that. Now, as we turn back to our program here today, Gage Zobel is is our guest. He is with the international law firm of Dorsey and Whitney. He's a partner there in the natural resource practice group. Gage, thanks for joining us here today on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for letting me come, Justin. Well, we have a lot to talk about because we're going to talk about just overall, just the use of public lands and how some of the encroachment from things that are happening on the federal level are some concern about where that could lead down the road. And we'll get into that, folks, as we go through this show. We're going to talk about some different things and various things that have happened. One of the first things that we can start looking at, and water has always been a big deal for ranchers, as we know. I don't really have to explain it. We all know the importance of that. But you are very, very familiar with a court case going on in Idaho right now. That How that's handled could give us kind of an idea on the wider implications that could happen. Let's talk about this Idaho case, your familiarity with it, and what that means to us as ranchers that are using public lands. You know, absolutely. Just if I can start with it, my, my interest in the case, although I'm not in it, is both as a rancher son. So I was raised on a ranch and I learned water law, which is my specialty. I never realized at that point the implications from 30 years ago to today, how you could really control the future of agriculture on public lands if you control the water. And I think the interesting thing that's going on in this Idaho case, which is ubiquitously named the United States versus Idaho, mm-hmm. is the potential wide implications of if a state still has the sovereign control over its water rights and if it has to make the federal government abide by them. And if it does, 
what does that mean for public land usage in the future? So just very briefly on what's going on with this case, you know, we can go all the way back to early 2000s in the Snake River Valley of Idaho, where they're doing a general wide adjudication, determining who owns what water rights, how much they can use those waters. And the federal government applied for water rights on all of its BLM and Forest Service grazing lands. Now, there was a court case that happened back then at the state level called Joyce Livestock that basically said, hey, you can't individually own the water rights, or if you do, they're going to be tied to the base property of the permittee who's using your land, your federal land. And we thought everything was going to be fine with that um, until later, where the state of Idaho enacted some new statutes. Everything within its right under United States law, all waters reserved to the state. The state really gets to make the control over it. And the federal government's opened itself up to being sued over that under the McCarran Amendment and so forth. Mm -hmm. This occurred and Idaho starts passing some additional laws to defend its ability to have water being used on public lands, but being reserved to the permittees who are using it and not to the federal government. And that really brings us to this case. Um, What goes forward is the United States government is specifically saying, look, we don't think we should be subject to forfeiture, which is the principle under water law that... If you don't use the water, you lose it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, a Western thing we all understand. Yeah, it is. Use it or lose it. It's abandonment. It's not a real property interest that you own like land. It's a usufructory interest. It's your use right that defends your right to have water. And what we see is that the federal government went through to a lot of its permittees in Idaho and basically strong armed them and said, hey, we know under that old case that you are the ones who own the water rights. But what we're going to say is we're not going to grant you a federal permit to graze your livestock unless you say you're our agent and then the water right gets to be ours. Mm -hmm. Okay. Idaho let that go through and that was fine. But what they're saying now is, okay, prove up on your usage. And if you've not used water on your federal public lands for livestock purposes for five years, you've enacted a forfeiture and you're going to lose those water rights. Look, the, the federal government's pushed really hard against this, but the underlying implication we're looking at there was you're seeing federal governments, which we'll get in this later, are not leasing up public lands anymore. And so if you're not going to lease your public lands for grazing purposes, livestock can't graze. They can't drink the water out of the streams and the federal government's going to start losing those water rights and they don't want to lose them. What they want is the best of both worlds where we've got these water rights that were basically permitted for the whole purpose of watering livestock, but we never want to be subject to losing them for usage because ultimately the purpose, they want to hold them for in-stream usage and just have them in time immemorial and take that water out of the system. Mm-hmm. And Idaho's really fighting against this. And what it's moved to is a federal district court case where we're going to make a determination for just Idaho, but there are broad implications if this gets appealed up for everything across the Western United States. Yeah. And I think that's the concern. And that was one of the reasons for reaching out to you and having you explain that is because a lot of these things Uh, I do have wider implications. And I think that's the real concern for folks in the West that do rely an awful lot on public lands, whether that be BLM lands, Forest Service lands. This is a very critical issue. 
as one of the things is we're, we're really bucking against not only tradition in a way, and, I, and I'm cautious about saying that because tradition can be good and bad in some ways, but we're, as you had mentioned too, I mean, we're bucking against some of the things that are just like common law type concepts in the West that the, now the federal government is saying, well, we're being penalized. So now we're wanting to go against that kind of stuff. And that's real concerning because the wider implications being that what's next in this. Look, so let let me tell you what's nice. I want to jump off what you just said. I think you hit it. You know, what's occurring today with federal usage and so forth on the lands, that occurred occurred 70 years ago. Mm -hmm. So what is it about today that's suddenly making these cases pop and these new regulations? And ultimately is, I look at two issues. Okay. The federal government's not using public lands the way they promised us they were going to use them in the West under the Taylor Grazing Act, under the multiple use mandate. They're changing the game. We have agreed to it. You know, traditionally, as states came into the union, the expectation was federal lands would be given to the states. We didn't get that out west. You know, yeah. you get a place like Nevada, it's 80 percent federal. Mm-hmm. Idaho, 65 percent federal. Utah, 70 percent federal. Montana, where I'm from, it's 48 percent federal land. We never got those lands, but there was this expectation that those lands would be used for our public benefit, in particular mining, but even more so grazing because we're agricultural states. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden, the last 15 years, 20 years, the federal government wants to mandate and use those federal lands differently. And because it's changing the game, it also wants to state that it's not going to be subject to what the state wants to do. And frankly, it's been a long-standing policy. State controls water. Yeah, The yep. federal government agrees to that. And then they're going to control their lands the way they want to. And so you're seeing the, the federal government want to basically take its cake and eat it too. Yeah. I, I think as well, you're dealing with the state sovereignty issue. And so stop up. The federal government, and the real key case here is McCarran, where they said, look, we are going to open ourselves up to lawsuit because as the federal government, you actually can't sue them unless they open up what's called sovereign immunity and they abrogate or open themselves up to suit. They did that. And they said, any adjudication of water, you can sue us. You you can bring us under suit. We, we recognize the state's primacy in controlling its water. And this implicates that they're saying, actually, we don't think it's an adjudication. We don't want to get sued. And so all of this is going forward um, and it's changing the landscape and happy to discuss where we think this goes. Ultimately, how does a little Idaho case, and it's not little, it's very important Mm -hmm. to Idaho, but it's 57 Stockwater rights. What is 57 Stockwater rights in the state of Idaho? How does that implicate a broader swath of Western United States? Mm -hmm. Um, Under our court system, this is going to get challenged. If Idaho wins it, you're going to challenge it up, the federal government will, to the Ninth Circuit because they're not going to want to live by this policy. Vice versa, if Idaho as the state loses, they're going to challenge it up as well to the Ninth Circuit because they don't want to lose out that they have the right to control their own water. When we get to a Ninth Circuit, it's anyone who probably listens knows, <laughs> yeah. notoriously yeah. liberal. I, I'm like, that's um, not good. That's not good. No. I mean, better Wyoming, where you're at, yeah. it's Tenth Circuit. I'd rather be in a Tenth yeah. Circuit. Yeah. Eighth Circuit over in Minnesota, North Dakota. Fifth Circuit, Texas, Ninth Circuit, unfortunately, which covers Montana, Idaho, Oregon, where you've got great grazing in Eastern Oregon, Nevada, Arizona. They're all part of the Ninth Circuit. This gets appealed there. And I don't know if they come out any way other than saying the federal government was right. And all of a sudden you've got federal law now based off cases that affects Montana, Idaho, Nevada, Oregon, Arizona, and everyone's grazing industries there on how the government gets to use their water rights. 
And of course, it's going to be by state law specific, but you're going to have this federal case that says, hey, you can't forfeit our water rights if we're not using them. I mean, it's complete violation of the abandonment that we have under Western water law. And the majority of the West outside of Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, New Mexico is going to be subject to that unless we get a Supreme Court appeal. And, and ultimately, you don't get those. You're going to have to have two different circuits. So maybe the 10th circuit will differently before the Supreme Court's ever going to take that up and challenge it. So we're looking at what? A decade? two decades yeah. of Western water law in a lot of our states where the federal government's going to start saying, hey, actually, we don't need to graze because we can keep our water rights without bringing your cattle onto our property. And you've lost the incentive now for them to even have grazing moving forward. Yep. Well, we still have a lot to talk about. My guest today is Gage Zobel. He is with the international law firm of Dorsey and Whitney. We're going to continue on. We've got a lot to talk about. We've identified just this Idaho case and the water element there. But as you heard from Gage, uh, this is not just an Idaho thing. And I think it's something we all need to think about. We're going to talk more as we continue in our conversation about some of the wider implications when we come back here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. This segment brought to you today by Diamond V, natural immune support postbiotic feed additives because your animal's health deserves a healthier approach. Find out more at diamondv.com. We'll be back after this. When your goal is to help animals reach their full potential, health matters. Diamond V offers a fresh perspective on animal health, a perspective that supports gut health, strengthens immunity, and enhances performance. For those who choose to invest in keeping healthy animals healthy, feeding Diamond V makes a statement about another dimension of profit where margins are measured by confidence in your future. To get a fresh perspective, visit diamondv.com because animal health deserves a healthier approach. Welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. My guest today is Gage Zobel, who's with the international law firm of Dorsey and Whitney, is a partner there in the Natural Resource Practice Group. Gage, uh, I appreciate you coming on the show here because as you and I were talking a little bit before at break, I was saying, okay, where do we want to go in this next segment? And I know as a rancher, as I was sharing with you, we have some Forest Service lease, just a little bit of of BLM. Uh, And so I understand the concern from the rancher's perspective in this. But what I don't necessarily see as much as probably you're familiar with is the wider implications what's what else is going on that has you concerned look honestly just in a lot and you know i go back and i visit my family's ranch all the time and at times visits an idyllic lifestyle you can be sometimes blissfully unaware about what's going on Mm -hmm. at not only a state but a federal level back in dc that can have deep implications for you and your ranching operation. And frankly, I think there's a lot. I'm gonna mention several things and they might seem a little esoteric, but we can see that working together, there's broad implications for the future of, I'm gonna say ranching in the West. Okay. As you mentioned, you've got 80 acres of BLM lease. I think depending on what part of a state you're in and where you're at, sometimes operations can be up to 50% on yeah. public lands. Yep. Yep. It, yep. It's just how you operate, especially where the, the federal government owns up to 80% of the property. The number one thing that I see that really initiated some of this was last year, we were going through a change under the multiple use mandate of public land. So Mm -hmm. on any federal land right now, they're governed by what we call FLPMA or the Federal Land Policy Management Act, which says, look, you have to use the lands for the benefit of the United States and they have to be used for public purposes and it's multiple use and certain uses are granted priority grazing. Mm -hmm. If it's open to location of minerals, you can locate unpatented mining claims there. 
oil and gas leasing, all of these things that we can do on our federal lands. The push came last year from Senator Heinrich out of New Mexico to change that. And it was finally approved. And ultimately, the change to the BLM in particular is multiple use mandate will now say that conservation of federal lands is equal to any other beneficial purpose. And you can actually lease out federal lands for the strict purpose of saving their conservation value. No, look, traditionally, we would say, if it's forest service, put that under wilderness. Um, or they even do their wilderness study areas, which are essentially just wilderness. But, mm -hmm. but whatever, you had to go through this more intricate process to withdraw lands out for conservation purposes. We're saying, no, now it's equal. It's equal to grazing. And if they think they can have a way to lease out conservation values on public land, they'll do it in disregard to what does it mean long-time traditional grazing or location of mining or so forth. At a first blush, it didn't seem overly concerning. You've got long-standing grazing permits, and you've got to have to weigh out what's in the United States. And a grazing lease is never going to make what, um, or make more rather, than a conservation lease would. Mm -hmm. But what we see is that was just a step one. We saw under something completely different, under the Securities Exchange Commission, what does that have to do with ranching? I mean, most of us are publicly traded companies. <laughs> We're not worried about that. A year before this, so two and a half years ago, they entered into a new policy called climate disclosure rules where it's required now that companies have to report federally traded company on ESG metrics, environmental social governance metrics. And in that climate disclosure, they must reveal their entire supply chain's carbon emissions. So if you look at a grocery store like in Albertsons, if these climate disclosure rules go forward, they have to go back through the entire supply chain and let's take it to beef yeah. all the way down to what is the carbon footprint that this beef is occurring from the gas release of the cattle to the churning up of ground with its foot, things that, that we wouldn't consider. They've got to report it, and it gives them an incentive to basically lower how much carbon emissions they're having so they're able to then get additional money from investors. You've got another statute that's coming out at the Securities and Exchange Commission, which limits investors' ability to invest in non-carbon-free companies. All right, so we see all this happening, and then we've just recently seen, and it got defeated, at least temporarily, another rule at the Securities Exchange Commission that was going to allow for the creation of what we know as natural asset companies. And okay. these companies would have the express purpose of buying away from private as well as sovereign, so United States entities, their ecological rights. It was the number one thing they would basically buy out these conservation leases on public lands and never allow any form of carbon increasing, destruction of carbon, Essentially, it would stop any grazing that would be occurring on the public lands, and they'd be in direct competition with grazing leases as they bought these things up. Now, you look at that. It was taking control of public lands. We authorized them to do it last year. We were creating companies to do it. We're creating new climate goals and climate emission standards that companies have to report. And on top of that, you throw a water case, which wasn't purposeful, but you can see the federal government's instance behind where they're saying, wait a minute, we don't want to lose our water rights. And we don't want to be subject to forfeiture. Well, as long as you're putting them to beneficial, you should never lose your water rights, government. Mm -hmm. Well, we don't want to use them. We want to keep them in stream. We want to basically pull them out of common public use. And we want to destroy any incentive that we need to publicly graze our lands. Because that's how you'd have to keep them alive. And you can see a broad policy implication between all of this, which is showing the federal government's moving away from its traditional hundred-year-old purpose of 
public lands will be used for the benefit of the locals near them, be that mining, be that leasing of minerals, or for our instance, grazing of public lands to a new mandate of we want to conserve the public lands. And we can't go through the process of making them national parks, but we're going to do everything in our ability to conserve them and make sure that they're no longer put into use. And you're seeing statute after statute, regulation after regulation, and court cases which are showing this is the new policy perspective that's being implemented out by the federal government. Mm -hmm. Gage, what I feel is an issue though here in this is, is, and it's similar to other social, we could take other social issues that have changed since maybe the 1950s and the 1920s to what we see now. And if you were to tell just Joe Blow on the street, here's what we're trying to do, they would say, well, I'm okay with that. And, and that's, that's a, I mean, that's what we're, um, partly what we're dealing with here is we, is the disconnect, which we've always said of uh, the disconnect between the consumer and their food, where they're getting it from and realizing that what they're in, what they're wanting to do over here, like the government want their cake and eat it too. The consumer's wanting their cake and eat it too. They want to feel good about their product, but at the same time, they don't understand some of the things that they're favoring is harmful to that product. No, I, you know, if I'm going to give anything and not negative against agriculture, but a, a suggestion to agriculture, I would say we need to do a better job in particularly in the ranching community about getting out in front and letting people know where their food is coming from and how it has to be raised, how this is needed. Look, I work as a mining attorney as well. Mm -hmm. Probably most of my clients are mining. We're doing that. We're trying to make this showing of if you get rid of mining, you get rid of our ability to do a green transition. You get rid of our ability to build anything. And so you, it's needed. And I think there's a disconnect between individuals who hear climate goals or, or what the federal government's doing, conserving public land seems great and realizing that's a direct connection to your beef processing. And I mean, look, if nothing else, draw the line on dollars and cents. If we have less land that we can graze on, that we can calve out on, we're going to have less cattle. And if you lower a supply, well, or we either have to do that or import the cattle. But either way, you're going to drive up costs and no individual likes going to the store and seeing beef prices for what they're at right now. Mm -hmm. And so there's a disconnect from the average consumer and understanding these federal policies are hitting your bottom line and you don't think it. It might feel good, but no one's really drawing this connection of if you attacked our ability to grow out, in particular, our beef, you're going to have to pay for it in the back end. And that's that's not good. And I'm with you. I don't think mm -hmm. we're doing a good job explaining that. And I think many times it's because they've taken very minimal approaches from a federal level. We don't see it. And I'll, I'll give you an example if I can. I have nothing against conservation easements. I think conservation easements can be a great policy for certain ranches. I've never put one on my family's ranch. Yeah. We're just never going to do it. I agree. Uh, but that being said, I don't have to make that decision. If there's estate planning reasons, I get it. I don't want to judge anyone else's use of their private land. What I do think, though, is there's no place for the federal government to be any conservation easements. We got local land trusts that are accountable to us that we can work with. So another new policy that's been going out is the federal government has wanted to enact these new United States Fish and Wildlife Service broad conservation areas. And they did one in Southwest Wyoming and in Northern Utah and Idaho that was called the Bear Rivers. And it covers 4.9 million acres. And it's not all a conservation area, but it's this big federal designation. And they say, look, we're going to get 900,000 acres of conservation easements in here. All right. So be it. doesn't seem like it has to be bad. They did the same recently with Montana, with the Missouri Headwaters Conservation Area. 
5.6 million acres, the entirety of all Southwest Montana, which is 70% federal land anyway. They just drew this big boundary line around it, didn't ask the locals, and they want to put a federal designation. And they're telling us, oh, it's innocuous. It doesn't matter. It's only willing buyers that want to sell us a conservation area. Well, okay, that's, it seems Mm -hmm. from a very minimal standpoint, all right, who cares? But you got to add the pieces and you say, well, wait a minute. If you have these, can you sell those to the NACs that you're creating on the Securities and Exchange Commission? Well, yes. Okay, so we have foreign ownership, if not even foreign, company ownership of conservation easements given to the government that then are going to be marketed and they don't allow us to even use our plan the way that we initially intended because we have additional carbon emissions. I mean, there's just all of these little Mm -hmm. steps. And if you're not watching out for it, we're just going to slowly slip away from our ability to use public lands and let alone our private lands. And it seems a concerted effort of which we originally talked about this water case. Water is just one of the many issues that they're working on. Yeah. Well, and you threw out some terms there that I think has some alarm to foreign ownership, some things like that, that I know in a lot of the more Western states uh, have are looking at passing laws of reducing that, but yet we're kind of the back door in that foreign ownership through, through some of this. We've got a lot more to talk about. Gage Zobel is our guest today. He is a partner in the Natural Resource Practice Group at the international law firm of Dorsey Whitney. He's a, a, a Montana, grew up on a ranch in Montana and uh, splits his time between Salt Lake and Missoula offices there. We're going to continue on with him as we continue to talk about some of this. It started off in our conversation talking about an Idaho case regarding water and as we just talked with gage some other things that have come down uh, through the federal government other areas that have some concern in regards to its wider implications and if you think this is just a western issue we'll stay with us because we're also going to be talking about how this is much broader than just the american west as well when we come back here on the working ranch radio show this segment today brought to you by the american gelby association make your crossbreeding count with gelby and balancer genetics find out more at gelby.org we'll be back after this. Capitalize on crossbreeding with Gelv and Balancer bulls. Raise replacement females with added fertility, increased longevity, and greater productivity. Gelv and Balancer influenced females wean more pounds of calf per cow exposed. In the feed yard, Balancer influenced cattle offer increased performance, improved feed efficiency, and had excellent carcass merit. Balancers add the pounds, make the grade, and deliver the value. Make your crossbreeding count with Geld V and Balancer Genetics. Welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. My guest today is Gage Zobel with Dorsey and Whitney as a partner there in the Natural Resource Practice Group. And Gage, you know, I'm not a guy that really likes to get into deep into conspiracy theory type stuff and that concern because I really believe that there's a lot that we can manage day to day that has more to do with our ability to succeed. But at the same time, we can't put our head in the sand either and so when we have our subject here today and if you're just joining us it really is stemming off of as we have expanded our conversation more but it started off with a a case going on in idaho regarding water rights and how with the federal government on on public lands we've expanded that conversation talking about some wider implications and as we went to break and come out of that i was telling gage i said you know i i 
where does the the legislative and the executive branch fit into some of this? Because we all know that at the end of the day, as you were saying, Gage, that, you know, it was a congressman out of New Mexico that was instrumental in some of this stuff. So we know there's some influence that they have. We know there's influence when, depending upon who's in the executive uh, branch of the government, how things are going to be going. So when we look at some of this stuff happening, you had mentioned we kind of talked about it break. It's kind of a game. Unfortunately, that's not what it was intended to be, but unfortunately that's what's going on. Yeah. No, I think you hit it right on the head. So I don't think we're, I don't believe in conspiracy theories either. I think the best thing you do is just stand up and you make a change. Yeah. And I think our legislators at the federal level can do that. That being said, I don't think it works maybe as we initially intended it to back when our country was founded. You know, if you look at it, our weakest form of government was meant to be the executive branch. And it's actually the strongest by now. We've really, out of our legislative branch, we've absconded or abdicated out the duties of forming laws. It's just too difficult. Our country's big. The federal agencies are huge. And so today, on a day-to-day basis, the majority of law that you're going to be dealing with is actually what we call regulation. And regulation is enacted by a federal agency. And that would be like Department of the Interior, um, the BLM within the Department of the Interior. What we're saying here is once you choose a president and he builds out his cabinet, and you have the executive branch moving forward, that's where the majority of laws that we deal with, they're coming out of that executive branch as opposed to our legislative branch. It doesn't mean the legislators are powerful. We have to play a game instead. Mm -hmm. What's happened instead now is legislators have the ability to look at those federal programs and say, wait, if we don't agree with what you're doing or what your policy implications are, we're going to defund you. You've got to come to Congress to be able to get approved for your budgets and you line item out those budget issues and they can come back and say, we will never approve funding for this. And that's really that last threshold of power that the legislative branch has. A great example, this NAC rule, I'm going to give a shout out to a representative I know. We went to law school together, Celeste Malloy out of Utah, who we discussed the NAC rule from the Securities and Exchange Commission. And she mentioned, like, you know, Gage, if this goes further, I'll work with interestingly enough, the people out of Wyoming, the Wyoming delegation Mm -hmm. and so forth, and we'll try to get it defunded. If this passes through as a regulation, we'll get it defunded. So it can never fully be enacted. And the problem with that is once you defund, you have to constantly make sure the money never goes into that program until you have a change in the agency and the agency goes in and rips out that regulation carte blanche. It just pulls it out. And when you do that, you've got lawsuits and then there's gonna have (laughs) challenges in the court. And so it just slows it down. But if we've learned anything, what we've learned is if you can stop something from being implemented five, six, seven years, it just really loses steam. And so that that's the way that we fight against this in a lot of ways. As we see these things going forward, the average rancher, the average individual who's looking abroad and says, I don't want these implications to affect my ability or my children or grandchildren's ability to keep operating our ranch to be affected you need to be contacting your federal legislators and tell them, do what's in your power. And if that game is defunding, then defund these programs because they have direct policy implications on our ability to move Mm -hmm. forward. Yeah. That's at the national level, Gage. State level, I don't see, I mean, I know some states, probably more those on the left coast and the east coast probably would form laws or things that are not as not as friendly towards agriculture. Some of the mountain states, probably Midwest states, not so much. Are there any issues with some of the state legislation issues that, that have some concern with what's going on? Yeah, you know, there are some. 
And I think it depends on which state you're in and what's going on. We're dealing with an interesting phenomenon in the Western states where it's really, given our current administration and, and what they're enacting through federal policy, the local states saying, at what point are what you enacting affecting our sovereignty as a state? Mm-hmm. And that okay. is a And so what you're seeing in a lot of legislatures, Utah's got some bills on it. Idaho had some bills on it. Montana's had bills on it. Nevada's had bills on it. Or at what point are we going to, as a state, stand up and say, we're not going to enact the federal policy? And, mm-hmm. you know, under constitutional law, the federal government's supreme. You can't say no to federal law where federal law is granted supremacy by state law. And so at what point are you able to say no as a state? And we're seeing a lot of legislation come out. And look, I, I'm, I'm a federalist. I believe the supremacy of the federal government. I'm nowhere advocating for something different. But what we also know is a lot of states have the ability, it's called anti-commandeering. Okay. And in particular, these public land issues, what they can say is, if the federal government's going to enact a policy that has direct implications on our state's ability to operate in agriculture or so forth, we're going to push forward basically called anti-commandeering legislation, which is we're not going to enforce the federal legislation. We're not saying it's illegal. Federal law is federal law. Mm-hmm. But you can't commandeer state resources to enact sure. that federal level policy. And it, it's kind of a we're not going to do this. And, yeah. and states can do that. And we're seeing it. The other really interesting thing I'm seeing is the federal government has been open to an idea of co-management of its federal lands. And it's actually partnered with a lot of tribes on this. Okay. So tribes are, you know, domestic sovereign nations. Mm-hmm. The federal government has a trust responsibility to them under the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And they open up a lot of federal lands for co-management. And I know Utah, for instance, has tried, and I think other states as well, is for other public lands within the state, we want to be co-managers. Yep, they're federal owned, but we want to be able to co-manage from a state perspective. Yeah. We understand best the resources here and how they're going to affect our local populace. And you're seeing some pushes on a state level where the states are asking that. And I think that's positive legislation. I think it's good. I think your state legislatures are more responsive to ag than maybe federal. So if we can get that pushed forward, it's a good way for the states to be able to act as an intermediary with those of us that are using public lands for our ranching operations. You bet. We're going to take a break here. My guest today, Gage Zobel, as we are talking about just public lands, use of that, some of the uh, where the federal government starting to encroach in some of those areas that we're seeing across the West. We've talked a little bit about that. And if you're thinking that, well, I'm we're not, I'm not in the West, I don't have public lands. I believe we talked a little bit in the second segment about the wider implications of this. I'm going to revisit that one more time, just a little bit. And then also, what can we do as ranchers, industry, agriculture industry folks across the country? What can we do as well when we look at this kind of a topic? We'll be back on the Working Ranch Radio Show after this. Welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. My guest today is Gage Zobel. He's with the international law firm of Dorsey and Whitney, a partner there in the Natural Resource and Practice Group. And Gage, I'll tell you what, you've <laughs> you've had given us a lot to think about here today. And as we sort of wrap up our conversation here, I want to revisit. You had talked a little bit about in the second segment just the wider implications of what we're seeing across the country when it comes to the federal government encroaching on maybe its states' rights in this 
last case that we started off with was the water case in Idaho, which water, as we know, is a state's rights, not federal. But at the same time, I think a lot of times when we go over these conversations and people hear about, well, that's just a Western issue. We don't have we don't have federal lands in our state. Well, you need to be fortunate about that. Number one, that you don't have federal lands in your state. But number two, don't think that it just stops with federal lands. And let's talk just real quickly about why this is applicable, this conversation that we've had here today to everybody in the country. Absolutely. You know, it's easy for me to look at the Western lands because I came from the West and public lands are such a big deal to my family, to other ranchers that I know. But that being said, the implications of what's going on, it's underlying generally a change in federal policy, which doesn't just affect public lands. I think it affects agriculture generally. And that implication is, let's jump. We brought up an Idaho water case. Mm -hmm. We brought up public lands. But I brought up this implication with climate disclosure rules, and I brought it up with NAC. Frankly, the Securities and Exchange Commission has far less to do with me than someone back east, but it still affects it. What we're seeing overall is that the government's changing policy perspectives, and if it affects it in the West, it does one thing, but if it affects it across the United States, it does another. And let me hit the first. If you affect us in the West, where we have a large cattle industry, you know, and I think one of the biggest cattle industries, if not the largest, is Texas, and there's no federal lands in Texas. So. Not going to affect Texas per se, but still, if you even have an incremental effect on the amount of cattle that we have, this is basic economics, and you're changing the supply structure because we can't operate with them. First of all, if we're not getting the grazing leases and we have to reduce our herds, you're going to have a supply glut as cattle are sold off and prices drop, and then you're going to have the exact opposite as prices jump up because we no longer have the cattle. Two, even if you do, you're going to have to start importing them in. So now wherever you are in the United States, you're going to be dealing with foreign imports and a cost structure that you're going to have to fight against on foreign imports who might be subsidizing out their beef industry to an even greater extent than we deal now. That's all implications of a disruption of a Western market. That's one. Mm -hmm. But two, and I think more important is we see generally the federal government's changing its policies, not just on public lands, but generally on the idea of what is the future of agriculture in the United States and how are we going to regulate it? And today we're talking with NACs, these natural asset companies or use of public lands, but underlying all that was climate disclosure rules Yeah. and the ability of how are you going to operate an operation where they're claiming that 17% of all emissions in the United States come from cattle and from basically the, the nitrous oxide or the, like the gas, the methane that the cattle are burping, belching as well as farting out. That affects everybody. And you're going to need to start reporting under your own supply chain, how much carbon you're emitting. What is your effect to the broader world? And this implication for us in the West goes throughout the United States. That's going to be everywhere. And that's under the new climate disclosure rules. So what I see is a multi-pronged approach to generally change how we operate ranches. And even if we're going to be able to in the future. And I don't think that just stops here in the West. I think that goes everywhere. Sure. Okay. So that's the concern. You've stated the, the wider implications, the concern, and it is sobering to hear that. What can we do as ranchers? What can we do as producers out there? And I don't think now is the time to have the divisiveness in our industry, uh, beef industry specifically, and agriculture industry. Uh, This is an issue that affects us lockstep across the board. So what do we do? So look, I'm going to even make it a broader implication. Then I'll hit what you said, Justin. I think when it comes to public lands, ranchers, mining, oil and gas, everybody that uses public lands, you're on the same side now yeah. because all of you are implicated that you're not going to be 
as easily allowed to use those lands in the future. So you know what? All of those traditional industries from the West that use public lands, you're bedfellows. As for, I'm going to say, the cattle industry general, yeah, you got to stand up and get the divisiveness out. The number one I think we can do, thing we can do is make it known what our operations are doing, how they're beneficial, and what is occurring to us, how it affects us. I mean, don't want to say the the squeaky wheel gets greased, but essentially that's what you're doing. If we just bear in silence, and I, I work with Midwest farmers. You mentioned I'm with Dorsey & Whitney. Dorsey & Whitney's headquarters is Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. We do a great amount of work with cooperatives and farming. It's the tradition of our firm. But I've walked farmers for years as new regulations came out. Well, you adjust to them and you just keep quiet. Find a way to make it profitable. And the profit margin just got squeezed out. I think as a ranching community, we need to see up front. We've never had the same profit margins. And as it comes forward, we need to be very open. When we see regulations that come out, you need to stand up and you need to talk to local legislators as well as federal legislators and let them know how these policies are affecting you and what it means for your bottom line. And we have to make it to the general public better known. The bottom line is if we go out of business, your food supply disappears. And I just don't think that's a connect that a lot of people get. And for those of us that grow up in ag, you get it. You Mm -hmm. see where beef is raised. You see where food comes from. You know the hard work it takes to get it. And you know that there's not large profit margins. And government regulation and implications squeeze those out. And sometimes you can't operate anymore. And you know what the long-term effects of that are. The broader swath of the United States doesn't understand that. So to the extent that we can publicly talk to our neighbors, people that we know to let them explain how these regulations affect us overall, that's helpful. More important, I'd talk to your legislators and let them know it's their duty as your representative to fight this government overreach and to make sure that we're able to move forward with a a ranching economy, a ranching world that works, not for you and me, but for my kids. So my kids can inherit my family's ranch and my grandkids can, and we can move forward. If we don't stop it now, the regulations aren't going to let us continue it. Yeah. And as you're talking about that, Gage, I think in our society now, seems like everything's split up into two, okay? Politically. Is the ability to sit down and be diplomatic in that conversation has eroded our, we don't do that anymore. Agreed. We just, we, we just throw a big fit and, and we don't, we don't sit down and, and have, have diplomatic conversations with people. And I just think, you know, handling a horse isn't much different. If you scream and holler at your horse, it's going to be hard for him to really want to work with you. And yet we, we pride ourselves as ranchers that we think we, we know how to work livestock, but we're terrible at working with people. Look, I agree. Look, I, one thing that I've always loved is we have to learn to be agreeable while being disagreeable, yep. disagree by being agreeable. And it's not wrong to have different opinions. And I mean, that's the number one thing. We shouldn't be afraid of different opinions and being able to hear them. But we have to be articulate enough and have enough background and knowledge that we can articulate our position and clearly explain what the harms are to us and then be willing to have hard discussions. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't matter about partisanship. It doesn't matter anyway. I think we've gone across the board. It's very easy to demonize individuals and to demonize other points of view. And if we come from a perspective of, and I'm going to even say as much as I disagree with all these things, I, I represent renewable energy companies and people that love some of these new policies that are coming out. You know, we have to be able to see that they're working from a perspective that they think they're doing what's best. And it's our duty to show them that what they're wanting to do is at best. So we've got to be articulate. We've got to be passionate, but we can't be disagreeable. We can't either shut down and say nothing or get angry because they immediately disregard us then. But if we come forward with articulated reasons, 
on why what they're doing is actually not for their benefit, it's hard to fight the facts. Perfectly said. Well said to end that. Gage, I appreciate you taking the time to join us here. We've covered a lot, a lot to think about. This is definitely one of those type of shows that I would encourage you to go back and listen to. Again, you can go to workingranchradio.com or any podcast provider out there and listen to that. Gage, thanks for joining us here today on the Working Ranch Radio Show. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Justin. You bet. And again, that was Gage Zobel with the international law firm of Dorsey and Whitney, our guest joining us here on our program. And again, his perspective coming from two different views, not only as he grew up on the fa- on his family's ranch in the big hole area of Montana, that's in southwestern Montana, just north of the Idaho border, a little ways there, but also his perspective from an attorney as he sees this playing out. And it's starting with just as simply as a water case going on in Idaho, as well as other policies policy changes and shifts that we have been seeing. Not that we have been totally blind or or ignorant of what has been going on, but again, that perspective of just looking how all of this can tie together. I think our program did that, and I I do appreciate his perspective on all of that here today, giving us a lot to think about. Well, stay with us. When we come back, the Captain Tim O'Byrne will be in for this week's edition of Tim's Two Cents, and meteorologist Don Day will be stepping in as we take a look at what he thinks the weather's going to look like across the country for the month of February. We'll be back on the Working Ranch Radio Show after this. Fascinated by our wild weather? Now you can learn, appreciate, and understand the weather in your own backyard with the new Tropo Rain Gauge. Having achieved the highest rating of any product reviewed by theweatherstationexperts.com, the Tropo boasts rugged durability, impeccable accuracy, and precision to the hundredth of an inch. Visit MeasureRain.com to order a Tropo today and use code RAINDAY, that's R-A-I-N-D-A-Y, for free shipping and 10% off. Go to Measure Hey, Justin. Hey, everybody out there in Working Ranch Radio Land. I am in Orlando at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association CattleCon 24 on the trade show. It's pretty crazy. There's so much to see. Oh, my gosh. I have to go over there as soon as I'm done talking to you, Justin. But anyway, I'm busy, and I will let you know later on kind of the synopsis of what folks were saying here, what their concerns were, the neat stuff we saw. Because I haven't made it around the whole trade show yet. Back to you in the booth. And that is the Captain Tim O'Byrne, publisher and editor of Working Ranch Magazine, dropping in this week's edition of Tim's Two Cents, coming all the way to you from Orlando, Florida, at the 2024 Cattle Convention. Always a lot to talk about of things going on there and a lot of things to see. I look forward to hearing from you, Captain, on that as far as what you're hearing from folks that attended the show, not only in topics and policy discussion that took place, but also some of the newfangled things that you were seeing on the trade show floor as well. Look forward to that conversation. Well, let's switch horses just a bit so to speak as we take a look now at our long-term weather and joining us as he does each and every week is meteorologist don day and don as you and i were talking before we went on air here uh several weeks ago as we always try to look long term in our weather forecast here you had indicated that as we get into february that things could get a little bit dicey towards the latter part or middle to latter part of the month and still a little lot yet unknowns in that but as we are approaching this you have indications you had mentioned it last week in one of your podcasts specifically looking at numbers of the arctic oscillation starting to head into negative phase and also the eastern pacific oscillation in negative phase both indicators that the door to Canada has not been, as you told me before we went on air, well 
welded shut. No, not at all. I mean, this recent spell of mild weather that's come across the nation, it's 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 amazing. It's like it caused amnesia. Uh, people forgot that just not very long ago, before this warm spell, <laughs> that we were breaking <laughs> record cold. And, you know, had had just severe cold for a long period of time. But then, boy, people's mood changes right away after the warm up. And it's been really nice to have. And mm -hmm. we will be looking at Pacific air across the lower 48 states, keeping temperatures pretty mild. There's going to be areas of the country uh, seeing rain uh, that normally gets snow. But uh, as you said, the, the door to Canada sometimes closes and it has been. But. It's going to open up again. And I think we mentioned this last week that Alaska mm -hmm. was going through just extreme prolonged bitter cold, even by their standards. Uh, it really, unless you know somebody up there, you really wouldn't know what that was going on. Yeah. So the cold air is there. It's just being held back. And, and what we're expecting to happen is that as we go further into February, this major pattern shift that's starting right now will go from a wet pattern, stormy pattern across the central and western United States, then to a colder pattern towards the middle of the month. And uh, it's it's only early February. Mm -hmm. And the opportunity for these Arctic outbreaks, or at least uh, spells of much colder weather to return, are certainly on the table. So this has been a classic January thaw, and that's just the best way to describe it. Yeah. It was a thaw. It, it's not a it's not a pattern. Mm -hmm. So when you look at this next phase coming in, how widespread are we talking? I mean, give us some indicators from a geographical standpoint of what different parts of the country are going to see. Well, with this trend change that we see towards the middle of the month, um, I think the same geographic areas that experience the cold will be the same areas that will see it again. Basically, the Continental Divide is kind of the the western boundary of where the coldest air will be and then spilling into the northern plains upper midwest and maybe getting down all the way into the southern plains again i can't tell you at this point in time if it's going to be as severe as what we had in january mm -hmm. but it will be an abrupt shift from you know this recent warm spell mm -hmm. so what we're doing is we're trying to stay ahead of the curve here which is yeah this warmer weather has been great it's going to last a little bit longer but we're, we are likely to see another cold phase towards the middle to the end of February. And one thing that you do see, in the, we are in the mature, the most mature phase of the El Nino. And we're also yeah. at the time of year where the El Nino really makes the biggest impacts before it begins to fade. Because this El Nino is on the way out by summer. It'll be gone. But it's happening, this mature phase, right usually when it has its biggest impacts. And as the El Nino matures, we, we will continue to see these Pacific storms come through but also have the opportunity for the, the Canadian air masses to come south. That's a volatile mix. That mm -hmm. Pacific moisture in that Canadian air can make for a lot of weather, a lot of stormy, unsettled weather. And I think we're going to really find this out in February and March, really coast to coast. There's going to be a lot, a lot of stormy, a lot of winter weather. Okay. Now I'm going to ask you to stretch just a little bit here as we look later into the spring. What are you looking at in terms of systems or cycles or phases that is giving you some indication of what you might think March and April is going to look like? Well, I think March and April is going to, with that with the El Nino weakening, um, but still having some remnants and leftovers of those warm sea surface temperatures out near the equator, that there's no reason to think March and April shouldn't at least trend towards what your your averages are what like we, we i hate to use the word normal yeah but when we when we look at where we should be in march and april we are looking about where we would be in a quote 
normal pattern, which means there's no strong signal that March or April will be really cold or really warm or really dry or really wet, somewhere in that Goldilocks zone. And you actually kind of like to see that because that does tend to lead to a little bit less in the way of of extremes. However, we all know what March and April, March and April normally uh, can be quite active, a lot of fluctuations in the weather. Um, And I think when it comes down to at least precipitation falling and setting the stage for the next growing season, what our soil moisture conditions are like, I think what this means is that for a lot of the, of the West, Central, the Southern U.S., the Southwest, the Central and Southern Rockies, uh, into the Midwest and Corn Belt, that you're probably looking at an adequate spring, mm-hmm. uh, late winter and spring in terms of precipitation. The one thing, one trend we're seeing this winter that I think will hold through the spring is the Northern tier. I'm, a, I, I'm concerned that precipitation will be a bit lower in Montana uh, the Dakotas, uh, up into southern areas of Canada to where the El Nino fed storms that we're going to be getting over the next couple of months mm-hmm. will be tracking south of those areas. Um, so March and April should should not give us one extreme or another, I guess is where I'm yeah. going. But yeah. that's also those are also two months that we normally get a lot of weather. Yeah. So um, so from that standpoint, I think that I think the from where we are talking now, mm-hmm. Till probably the middle of May, I don't think the weather's going to disappoint in terms of a lack of it. I think okay. there's going to be plenty of weather going through. If there's plenty of weather going through, most of you out there listening are, are going to be getting precipitation, which is when we start talking about going into summer, mm-hmm. you know, that's we talk about soil moisture all the time and soil moisture profiles. That's what we want to see. Yep, absolutely. All right, Don, appreciate it. Thanks for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, that is meteorologist Don Day as we take a look at our long-term weather. Some good information there as we look beyond just this week and into the further of the spring of the year. It always gives us a little bit of an idea what to be preparing for. By the way, if you want to follow along each and every day with meteorologist Don Day, you can go to his website at dayweather.com and there you can find the link to his daily video podcast. You can also find it on YouTube as well. Stick with us. I'll tell you what's in store for next week's edition of the Working Ranch Radio Show when we come back after this. Coming up next week, Lamar Steiger will be our guest from Ranch to Retail as his work as a consultant and understanding not only the rancher's perspective, but also the retail side of things. A lot of great insight. You'll enjoy next week's show. Now, if you do have an idea for a show topic or question, comments you might have, please feel free to reach out. My email address is justin.workingranch at gmail.com. Working Ranch Radio Show is a production of Working Ranch Magazine, branded number one by America's Ranchers. I'm Justin Mills. And until next time, keep your chin down and your mind in the middle. So long.